This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord. When John the Baptist heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? Someone dressed in soft robes? Look, those who wear soft robes are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. Yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. This is the gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. So my very first call as an ordained priest was one for which I was both unprepared and completely unqualified. I was called to be the chaplain to an elementary school. Sure, I was a father and somehow had shepherded my own two girls through childhood, although truth be told, that was really their mother's doing. But beyond my credential as a dad, I had no real training for teaching young children, let alone helping to form them as spiritual beings. Now, the first thing I needed to get my head and heart around were the vastly different ways children in grades nursery through eight learn and grow. One of my first mentors in this regard was the school's music teacher, and I'm going to call her Katie. Because music and religion were taught back to back in this school, sometimes in the same multi-purpose classroom, I would usually arrive early and watch Katie teach the children music before my turn came to teach religion. One day, I remember watching her teach a simple song to a group of kindergartners. After carefully teaching the class the melody and the lyrics, Katie then asked if anyone would now like to volunteer to demonstrate how to sing the song. And no sooner had she asked than nearly every hand in the class shot up and you could see a room filled with squirming, wiggling five-year-olds all eager to show the world what he or she could now do. Afterwards, I praised Katie for her teaching skill and easy manner with the children and told her how impressed I was with the enthusiastic response of all the kids so eager to volunteer. 
That is kindergarten for you, Katie said, but just wait until I get the fourth graders in here. Then I'll be lucky to get half a dozen volunteers. And by the time the eighth graders arrive, all I'll see are blank stares with eyes rolling in their heads as if I were from another planet. The truth is, Katie explained, when kids are four or five, they are filled with curiosity and wonder, utterly unselfconscious and without guile. And when you introduce them to a new experience, they take genuine delight in it. Yes, you have to be patient with kindergartners, but what they lack in discipline, they more than make up for in sheer joy. But then she said with a sigh, Somehow the world manages to squeeze the joy out of them somewhere between fourth and sixth grades, and by middle school, the joy of singing for most of them has been completely squelched. Now, I'm not sure what accounts for this loss of joy as we age, if it is the natural and inevitable arc of growing self-consciousness as we mature, or if culturally we discourage children as they get older from taking the risks of exploring imaginative and creative endeavors that allow for joy, or if our hyper-competitive culture is so judgmental that we become afraid of failure, worried we won't be liked if we're not as good as our neighbor, or if it is a hangover of our Puritan heritage of keeping our noses to the grindstone. But whatever it is, we seem to have lost our capacity for joy. Well, we're going to change that today because the third Sunday in Advent, as I've mentioned, is all about joy. Sometimes called Gaudete Sunday, which is Latin for rejoice, this Sunday is intentionally designed to be a bit of a break from the penitential tone of the rest of Advent. That is why the candle on the Advent wreath is rose-colored to remind us of this joy. The dark apocalyptic readings of the first two Sundays of Advent are behind us, and the focus now in our lessons is on the joy we anticipate in God's arrival in our lives. You heard in our first lesson from Isaiah that he could barely contain his joy in anticipation of God's renewal of the earth. The prophet describes how the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad, how the desert shall rejoice and blossom, and how the whole creation shall rejoice with joy and singing. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame shall leap like a deer, and even the speechless will sing with joy. Our psalm today, likewise, echoes this chorus of joy, describing the justice God promises to bring to the oppressed, the hungry, the stranger, the orphans, and the widows. And, of course, there are few biblical songs more joyful than the one we just sang as our canticle of praise, the great Magnificat, the song Mary sings when she learns that she is to be the mother of a holy child. And while you may not think 
that cranky old John the Baptist, grumbling in prison with doubts about whether Jesus really is the Messiah, has anything to do with joy, think again. The whole point of today's gospel is to hear Jesus answer these doubts with a resounding proclamation of joyful news that the kingdom of heaven is indeed near, as the many fruits of Jesus' ministry attest. And what Jesus will eventually make explicitly clear later in the Gospels, as the evangelist John tells it, is that Jesus' deepest desire, and he says this in his farewell prayer, his deepest desire is that God's joy may be in us and that our joy may be complete. And if you don't believe me, John 15, 11, go read it for yourself. Jesus wants joy to be in our hearts. Now, if you think I am belaboring all of these scriptural references about joy, you are right, because my aim here is to convince you this morning of this one basic truth, this one basic truth of the Gospels, the meaning of life, is joy. God created us to be joyful, and joy is our ultimate destiny. And while the world may try its best to beat the joy out of us as we move through adulthood, God promises to restore that joy come hell or high water. The promise goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis, if you remember. God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, not for their labor, but for the joy of each other's company in paradise. Work came into the world only because Adam and Eve messed everything up. In the biblical scheme of things, labor is a consequence of sin and brokenness. God originally created us not for work or success or achievement, we were created for sheer joy, the sheer joy of being in company with God and with each other and with the beautiful world he created. Somehow, though, we keep forgetting this fact. Most of us seem to live to work, and we end up just weary and worried. Our culture somehow knocks the joy and playfulness out of us, convincing us that there is too much to be done, too many tasks to do, too much serious stuff to attend to. We come to regard joy as a guilty pleasure reserved for our spare time, if we have any, rather than an essential and life-giving part of who we are and who God wants us to be. The gift of joy is that it frees us from all those workaday things that bind us. The need to produce, to be practical, to follow rules, to please others, to play it safe. Joy is its own reward, its own reason for being. It is without purpose, filled with wonder, surprise, expectation, insight, beauty, and power, Joy just blissfully is. 
Now, ultimately, all of these attempts by me to define joy end up falling somewhat short. Joy has to be experienced to be known. Now, I'm mindful that joy for many of us can seem remote and that there are times when we live under dark clouds of one kind or another. Grief, illness, depression, addiction, a broken relationship, things that keep joy at bay. But I'm also sure that each one of us at some point in our lives has been there, in that place of joy. And so what I would invite you to do on this Gaudete Sunday is to think back on your own life, maybe all the way back to your childhood. Try to remember those moments, those moments when you truly and deeply felt joy. When time stopped in its tracks and you were taken out of your head and put in touch with something much bigger and better and brighter than the smallness of self. Maybe it was building sandcastles at the shore with a sibling, or baking pies with grandma, or skiing down the mountainside on fresh powder, or sitting with dad in the bleachers at Fenway, or listening to Bach. Or maybe it was when you first met your beloved, or sat effortlessly next to him in silence by the fire on some cold wintry night just soaking up each other's presence. But whatever your joy is or was, try to name it and reclaim it and if you can, relive it. Try to be guided by what brings you joy, not what drags you down. Hold fast to whatever joy you have known, for that is where God means you to be. For joy will have the last word. That is God's promise to us. It will have the last word. Pure and simple joy. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon from Holy Trinity Evangelical Lutheran Church in Newington, New Hampshire, part of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. You can find us at htelc.com. And don't forget, you are loved.